The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And we're doing some true crime today. My longtime friend, actor Paul Walter Hauser, who just uh, took a guitar shot on AEW Dynamite a few months ago, just won the Golden Globe for his betrayal of serial killer Larry Hall in the Apple TV series Blackbird. Now, if you haven't seen it, you need to check it out. He did an outstanding job playing the super creepy killer who was never actually convicted of murder. This is true. He's suspected of killing up to 50 women between 1981 and 1994, actually girls, teenage girls and less, um, between 81 and 94 when he was finally arrested he's currently serving life in prison without the possibility of parole but not like i said for murder it's a fascinating case so i got john and jamie returning from true crime cast back on the show talk about this one they got details about larry hall's childhood how his love of civil war and revolutionary war reenactments aided in his killing spree and how growing up near a cemetery and digging graves at the age of 12 likely affected his development how could it not they talk about how larry was arrested and what he was actually convicted of and how that led the fbi to recruit another convict jimmy Keene, to help them get a murder confession out of larry we discussed the real life case and circumstances versus what was depicted in the tv series what was spot on and what was made up for dramatic effect we share our own theories about justice and how the case was handled so john and jamie from true crime cast and the case of larry hall are coming up so is Fozzie's spring tour. We start tomorrow night, March 23rd in Bloomington, Indiana. Then we go to Hobart, Indiana on Friday. We are in Cincinnati, uh, Milwaukee on Saturday, Cincinnati on Sunday, Johnson City, Tennessee. Uh, that's the first leg of the tour. And we're rolling all the way through April 17th. Lots of those dates are sold out already, but don't worry. We added more shows. We're coming to the West Coast with Ugly Kid Joe. We start again May 4th in Los Angeles. We're hitting Las Vegas, Albuquerque, Houston, Dallas, Tampa. Uh, to see the full list and all ticket information, go to FozzyRock.com and come to the Fozzy VIP meet and greet. One of the best of the biz. We will meet you, take pictures with you, sign autographs, even play a private sound check for you. And one lucky VIP will get a chance to sing with us if they so choose. So go to FozzyRock.com for all ticket information and VIP. And we'll see you tomorrow night in Bloomington, Indiana. All right, let's go to FozzyRock.com to get those tickets, and let's stay right here for the strange and crazy case of serial killer Larry Hall with John and Jamie from True Crime Cast right here, right now on Talk is Jericho. 
All right, coming back to the fold here for probably, I don't know, the fourth or fifth time. John and Jamie from True Crime Cast. You guys are going to need to get some uh, green blazers or something for being here so often. I'll take it, man. Thank you for having us. There's a club of some kind. Count us in. I'll just give you free tickets to AW. How's that sound? Worth it. (laughs) It's worked out great for us so far, so keep it coming. So we're always looking for interesting topics, and uh, I actually approached you guys about this one. Usually you guys have ideas for me, but... I watched Blackbird because my friend Paul Walter Hauser, who I've known for years, obviously won a Golden Globe for his performance. And I've been a big fan. I didn't really know about Blackbird. I didn't even know what I was getting into. I just knew that Paul won the Golden Globe and anything he does, I enjoy. So I just turned it on and started watching. In watching it, obviously, it's the story of Larry Hall, a suspected serial killer who goes to prison. You guys can kind of explain the whole situation, the whole story, but... It's riveting. Uh, Paul's portrayal of this guy is super creepy, which obviously I'm sure he's basing it on the real guy. I mean, just a total nut, a total lunatic. And that's why I contacted you guys and said, well, if anybody knows about nuts and lunatics, it's John and Jamie. So let's kind of get into the uh, the crimes and the history of Larry Hall. Yeah, you certainly... And we're talking about nut jobs. This is a big one. Before you get into it, did did you guys, were you guys familiar with this guy before uh, Blackbird or before I brought it up to you? Because I know you always do extensive research, but did you know anything about him from beforehand? No, no. Oh, wow. So I watched Blackbird on your recommendation. First off, amazing series. But no, so that led to all the research. So fascinating. And to be honest, as we we look over cases, like Larry Hall is an easy name to pass over. It's like a very generic name. There's very little actually legally. There there wasn't a ton of time in court. There's not a lot of court transcripts. But the story. As a matter of fact, when you text me and say we've just finished our Larry Hall research, I was like, well, who's Larry Hall? I had to actually look it up. Oh, yeah. The Blackbird guy. So you're right. It's a very nondescript name. It's almost like we picked up a rock and found this very ugly insect underneath. Because like you said, this guy is as bad as it gets. He really is. And the the way they portray him is absolutely perfect. But to, to let you know how he got to where he was in prison when the, when the series started, he was born in Indiana in 1962. He was a twin. And I know the, the show talks about having a brother. It was actually an identical twin named Gary. Uh-huh. Larry was very different. If, I know in the show they didn't look alike. They do look a lot alike, but Larry was not really healthy when he was born. He had some learning disabilities, and they really said that Gary took most of the resources while they were in the womb. And I don't want to make light of this, but this reminds me a lot of that movie Twins with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, where they <laughs> right. have one really good twin and then the other is Danny DeVito. Larry Hall is the Danny DeVito of this set of twins. Like literally, yeah. Like the the one guy is such a good looking guy and very smart and intelligent. This other guy is just a complete, very strange, wacky character. Not good looking, shall we say? No, he was kind of the everything that was left over in the gene pool. It seems like, yeah, yeah. And even with the speech impediment when he was a kid, the way that Paul portrayed him talking was just so. So eerie. He uses a really high voice and talks like that all the time. It was really creepy. I don't know how the that, the guy was able to do that and just like have a voice afterwards. Like yeah. he did a really good job portraying that role. He really did. As we end up saying with most killers, he had a rough childhood. No surprise there. He was often bullied because of his uh, speech impediment, because he wasn't smart, because he wasn't like the other kids. He didn't have the emotional capacity to either relate to them and make friends or to deal with the consequences of not having friends. So 
a rough start. I feel like we have to say that every time, but it's it's very common in all the killers. Not a not a great childhood. Yeah. So let's talk about his dad for a little bit. His dad was a caretaker of a cemetery. And in fact, the family lived pretty much right beside the cemetery. So the family could kind of take care of it. And his dad was like a grave digger. Again and again, we see this for serial killers. At some point in their childhood, there's a fascination with death and around death. And we just kind of wonder, is this where Larry started with his dad being a caretaker of a cemetery? And while this is completely a different situation with Hall, he lived a life where he was constantly surrounded by death because of this role. And, and around 12 years old, he got involved himself. His dad would make him dig graves and that's portrayed in the role or in the series as well. So Larry had a low IQ. He was subjected to bullying. And if you watch the film, it makes a lot of sense. And he was repeatedly abused by his dad, who was also an alcoholic you know, he was staring death in the face almost constantly because of where he lived. And, you know, when you combine all those things together, it's a formula that ends in disaster. I don't know. We were talking before we we started recording. I don't know what it would be like to grow up like cemeteries creep me out when I go to funerals or when I drive by. I can't imagine. Right. I guess you get desensitized with seeing it, but that's such an eerie place to grow up. Well, especially when your dad, like you said, he's a grave digger. I mean, that's you know, you're, we're all products of of our environment, you know, and, and like you said, like, okay, so my dad played pro hockey. So as a result, I have a pro- proclivity of, of being a hockey fan. You know, I collected the cards and I watched the games and, you know, everything hockey. So don't tell me that his dad is a grave digger and you're not thinking about graves or he's talking about this grave he had to dig at work. And as a child, you probably come to terms with the finality of life pretty quickly and, and most kids should not probably not be exposed to that sort of thinking when you're not even a teenager yet yeah and and i think that and he was made to dig the graves as well at 12 years old like i think about that 13 year old wow first off i don't think he could dig a very big hole yeah <laughs> i mean like but also he was being physically abused and his dad was a drunk so i wonder if when he's digging those holes if he ever thought about putting his dad in one because i mean he was just an awful life it seems that you would understand just how fleeting life is and probably heard a lot of stories about people who, you know, died in accidents or, or got killed. It probably desensitizes you to death. And we're going to be talking about this, but in Blackbird, the, the, the series, he's very desensitized. Like, there's no problem with killing somebody. Like, what's the difference? We're all going to end up in the grave anyways. Like, who knows what he's really thinking as he's digging these graves at 12 years old? Yeah, most of us learn about that from losing a pet or a grandparent, and here it is a part of his everyday life. And like John said, there are a lot of scenes in Blackbird about Larry digging graves with his dad, but it also shows him robbing graves. Yeah. And I tried my best in my research to find evidence of that. And while it certainly seems to fit the narrative of everything going on in his in his life, of who his dad was and who he became, there seems to be no evidence that that actually took place. It was never brought up in any kind of legal proceedings and that's not as easy to nail down as some of the other things that we do know he did but i wouldn't be shocked if they were doing that we do know that his dad was fired from his job while uh larry was a teenager and part of that was he was putting the bodies in the wrong grave sites wow i guess if you're putting the stones up you're digging the graves and you're drunk that at some point you're gonna misplace a body which (laughs) is horribly unfortunate not only him losing his job and his son seeing that. But families, this is a huge part of families coming together is 
around death of where are we going to go to this funeral? We're going to decorate the grave and that kind of thing. So, so much going on there. Around the age of 15, that's when we see him start getting in legal trouble. Early on, he and his brother were doing, in some parts, regular teenage stuff. They were running around town and they would break some windows, uh, did a little bit of uh, vandalism. But Larry also started some fires and committed some robberies. Now, we've, I think, discussed this before, but there's this idea of the McDonald triad, these behaviors as a youngster that most serial killers have. And those three things are arson, bedwetting beyond a reasonable age, and animal abuse. We don't have any records of animal abuse, but we do know that Larry set things on fire and there are reports of the bedwetting piece. So those indications start adding up over the course of time. I don't know if you know this, Chris, I work with foster children for a living. Yeah. I remember you told me that a few times. Yeah. A lot of times with children who experience trauma and specifically like sexual abuse trauma that manifests in bedwetting. And I've always wondered if part of that, my McDonald triad just results or is a result of the abuse and trauma that Larry may have resulted, you know, come. Sure. His first arrest was when he was 15. He and his brother broken some windows downtown at a storefront and the police brought them in. I mean, this is Wabash, Indiana, small town. So the, the, the sheriff brings him in and starts to talk to them about what happened. And he had this to say about his interrogation. He said, it took a long time before we could crack the Hall brothers. They were just kids, but they held up better than hardened criminals, even over something as petty as a broken window. Hmm. Now, that's pretty surprising to me, knowing that Larry had a low IQ. He was fragile emotionally. Usually, when we see that combination, people are more likely to falsely confess to crimes or more likely to break easier. But there was something inside him that allowed him to kind of bury his evil desires and his evil acts. So a combination here of things continuing to build up for him to be a quote unquote, I guess, successful killer. We also find out that most of his abductions and murders were sexually motivated. And while the age isn't clear, uh, it's reported that he lost his virginity and had his first sexual experience with a sex worker. That kind of drove him as part of walking around to find these little girls, trying to find these girls that he wanted to approach sexually. And then I don't know if you want to say he lost control. I think he was in control, but that's when... He, he took it way too far. And he was a teenager when he had his first yes. experience. And that was with a, with sex, a sex worker. worker. Yep. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This is so funny. It's almost like Blackbird was written by the three of us who are providing every trope of a serial killer. You know what I mean? Like, it's always... The dad abused him and he got beaten and was an alcoholic and now this guy's a grave digger so he's around death and now he's having sex with prostitutes. I mean, it's it's like every other serial killer rolled up into one for this guy. Yeah, so far it's like the worst murder mystery novel ever written because it follows <laughs> yeah, this book. Exactly. But it does it this is where it starts to change. So that's great timing. And also too, when we when we laugh about this, because I just realized that it seems so 
callous to be laughing. We're not laughing at the, how much of an of a, of a lunatic this guy is. Just laughing at just how generically he's put together as far as the things that led him to do what he did. Absolutely. And and while there are a lot of similarities between him and other serial killers, there are some differences. But one thing that I think is similar that that we should point out is we see a lot of times with serial killers that they are in a profession that requires them to travel or almost be transient. Like right. if I'm going to be a truck driver, I can murder someone in California because since I live in Kentucky, it's hard to pin that on me. Well, his thing that kept him traveling around was like civil war, revolutionary oh, war reenact. Right. That's so, new ground for us. I think. Yeah. That's I've never had that happen. Interesting. Yeah. He, he loved these civil war reenactments, these revolutionary war reenactments, and he would drive his old, like serial killer looking van around all these cities. And that's what kept him transient and almost unidentifiable because of, of that. It's weird, Chris, like we live, Jamie and I live like three miles from a historic civil war battlefield. And once a year in August, they have this huge camp that comes into town and they do a rec, uh, like a, what's it called? A reenactment. A re-enactment. Recreation reenactment. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, there can be as little as like a hundred guys in this, but we've seen thousands of people yeah. come down and, and do this reenactment. So there's like a pretty big culture around it. And he, and he was a big part of that. And it's a pretty tight knit group, but again, it's spread out. So you're not going to see the same people all the time. And this allowed him to kind of be there without being there. So he would use that to meet, if that's the right word, or find new victims that he, that he was, you know, obviously, because we're going to get into it, abducting, raping, torturing, murdering, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's like when he's in these towns doing these reenactments, then when his job is done and he's just driving around, he sees these girls that he is able to talk to and pick up. We It's in the film. And I think it's worth noting, like his appearance looks odd yeah. and it's actually like he stayed in character. Like he grew out his chops. He called him burn sides, uh, but they're just these ginormous sideburns. And that was from the era that he was portraying. Like he said in the film and it's legit, like people with those sideburns or they call them burn sides. Those were like captains. Those were people who were important in those battles. So I think he made himself feel important by growing those out and dressing up as a soldier. Yeah. Also interesting to learn the origin of the term sideburns because they're named after, I think it was like you said, like a Colonel or a general in the civil war named, let me just say Robert, I could be wrong, Robert Burnside. So he's very adamant that you don't call them sideburns. They're burn sides. So like you said, because they're come from a place of power and he's very knowledgeable about the burn sides. Actually, we live about an hour away from a Civil War battlefield in Somerset, Kentucky, and it's known as the General Burnside yeah. Camp. So there you go. Yeah, it's, it's named after him. I, I wonder what the search volume was of sideburns versus burnsides after this show came out. I was thinking that as I was as I was looking into it. I bet. Yeah, I, I, I just thought it was cool. And also, too, I mean, look, I just Google right now. He's got the total same look as Larry Hall. And he's also got the amazing uh, Civil War first name of Ambrose Burnside. <laughs> yeah. If you're looking at Burnside, I mean, this guy Larry Hall is wearing wearing the exact same look as Ambrose Burnside. And as prominent as these things are, they're also. I mean, it's not like the fair came to town or there's a huge concert in town where people gather. These are people who they're their own little culture. They really don't impact the economy when they come into town. Most people don't know these things are happening, so that allowed him to travel throughout the Midwest from 1980 to 1994 
just being whoever he wanted to be, recreating himself in these towns. And looking back on that time, there as many as 40 women that went missing or were found murdered in or around these towns where the reenactments took place or along the routes that Larry would have traveled to get there. Not only do we know he was involved in this, but we can go back and map. He was likely in this town at this time. And that same weekend, this person went, went missing. So there's a lot of correlation. It's a lot harder to prove the causation of him murdering these people. But he's suspected of most of those crimes, most of those 40 we've talked about. But at the time, he wasn't. He wasn't on anybody's radar. He's, he worked as a janitor. He spent his free time learning about history and doing some word uh, woodworking and killing people. Yeah. He first came on the authorities' radar in May of 1994. There was a girl named Amy Baker in Perryville, Indiana. She was out rollerblading, which was a thing you do in the mid-90s. And then this tan-colored van, like John mentioned earlier, and like, like you were talking about, this is so stereotypical. It's a van with no windows that's just driving around, and it kept driving by this teenage girl. She continued to see it go by again and again, so she grabbed somebody that she knew nearby and said, hey, if this van keeps driving by or if if I don't show up at home later, if you don't hear from me in a bit, this this is likely what happened to me. And this was really in the, we've talked about some of the cases, Amy Maholovic and Adam Walsh that led to this stranger danger culture that we were taught as teenagers of stay away from strangers. Everybody out there is trying to kidnap you. And he's part of the reason why. There were two other girls in the same area on that same day that reported being followed. And thankfully, some of them got his license plate number. Abby Rommel and Kaylin Hoskins told their families they were being stalked and they went to police with a license plate number. And this is the first time that the name of Larry Hall had come up in connection with any hmm. type of sexual or deviant crime aside from the vandalism as a teenager. Wow. Yeah, because they called that in, they were able to connect the van, which, like Jamie said, it was a very suspicious looking van anyway, to Larry Hall. And when they tracked Hall down, the next day, he just happened to be driving by some young girls on the street. So Officer Neil Pence actually caught him red-handed doing what was reported to the police just the day before. Pretty freaking convenient, right? Sure. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, But this is a situation that we see often. A criminal is confronted by police for a lesser but potentially related crime to what they know they've already been doing. So sometimes police get lucky and they stumble upon the whole story like and other times they move along to allow the criminal to keep doing what they're doing. But even with this common situation, it did not play out as expected with Larry Hall. They did find a large amount of cleaning supplies in the van, which he was a janitor. So this kind of made sense. It wasn't a big deal. But they also found a mask, a knife and rope. And they also found a newspaper clipping about a missing girl. And I think when you're on this call as a police officer and find these things, several red flags start popping up. Mm -hmm. So when he was pushed about what all this was and why it was in his van, he immediately confessed to the murder of 19-year-old Trisha Lynn Rattler. So he's in this situation for just a moment, basically. And the minute he's pressed a little bit, he confessed. Which is what we would expect from somebody with his IQ, with his emotional stability or lack thereof. It was a pretty quick confession. She had gone missing from Indiana Wesleyan University, so it was near where he lived, and it seemed like they had solved the case. 
However, but yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. They couldn't locate the body. So authorities believe that this was a false confession. And if you watch the series, several people say, including his family, he's a serial confessor, which I do think those people exist. They want the attention. They're going to say it was me. I did it. People try to claim other people's crimes, but they had a serial killer in custody and just let him walk out the door scot-free. Didn't even push him further on the supplies they found in his in his van. This is we talked about it with Dahmer. We have these. We talk about this. All the time. It's the same thing that happened with fucking Gacy and the same thing that happened with, you know, like you said, with Dahmer. It's like, I don't, I don't understand this. Thinking about Hall, like if I'm in the police officer's shoes, like, do you talk to a guy like this and think in your head, like, this guy can't be capable of this. Like the guy doesn't even know where he's at right now. But I think his sexual drive and, and everything with his IQ and his trauma history, just add all that together. And it's awful, but it sucks that they had him and they let him go. But within five minutes of hearing his voice in Blackbird, I'm like, oh, that dude kills people. Like, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, I can see it with with Dahmer, maybe, and then you know, Bundy and those type of guys. But this guy, like, you know, as a policeman, just looking at his his sideburns is enough to go. Let's just keep him for a couple of days. On you know, we have a rightful reason to do it. And like you said, hearing his voice and all this other stuff, like, it, it's not like this guy is a movie star. He looks weird and he talks weird and he's weird. He's a creep. He's a creep. Exactly. This isn't the charismatic, good-looking serial killer that people write letters to in prison. This is the guy right. that, yeah, exactly. that our parents warned us about as kids. Yeah, don't go near the van or talk to strangers. I, I get that everybody makes mistakes, but especially with somebody confessing. I just don't know how you don't continue to vet that and at least keep him in custody. But like I said earlier, around this time, he was living back in Wabash, Indiana. And in October of that year, police received a call from a detective from Vermilion, Indiana, in the sheriff's department there. And it was Gary Miller who is played by Greg Kinnear in the, in the show. Mm -hmm. Now this call was in part to follow up on a few attempted abductions that had happened in Georgetown, Illinois, but also to see if there was any possible connection to the murder of Jessica Roach. Now this is the one case that, that ultimately got him brought in. And this is where his legal battle started. Jessica was a 15 year old girl that lived in Georgetown, Illinois, and she had been seen last on September 20th of 1993 by her sister Mindy as she was walking down the street pushing her bicycle. Later that day, a bus driver whose name was Daryl Morgan saw a nice bike lane right in the middle of the road. So he stopped his bus, checked it out, saw that it was in good shape, and he reported it to authorities and they immediately realized that Jessica, again, this is a small town, had gone missing. Her body was found in a field about two months later it's reported that a man was walking out in the field alone and then left in a tan colored van. And this tan colored van is how he kind of got tied back to Larry Hall. And when somebody followed out to see what somebody was doing in the field, that's when they found her remains. She was likely strangled to death. She was also beaten. She suffered a broken jaw, likely due to being punched by a much larger perpetrator. And this is a scene in Blackbird that just... It's when your skin starts to crawl and you can see Jimmy Keene's character, who we'll talk more about in a minute, yeah. start to sweat. He's talking about putting the belt around her neck and twisting it behind the tree, like just incredibly graphic. Yes. In real life, Jimmy Keene, who was there to, to try to get him to confess, had to almost be approving of what he was hearing. So a brutal death of this 15-year-old girl, and they thought that Larry Hall may be attached to it so this is how the investigation thanks to again gary miller who started all this 
into Hall that hopefully saved a lot of lives. Yeah. So when Gary Miller was following up on the tip about the tan colored van, Larry Miller, of course, came to mind. And when Gary Miller contacted the police station in Wabash, they had a very interesting question for him about Jessica Roach. They asked, there happened to be a war reenactment in town near the time of her disappearance. And knowing a bit more about Larry Hall, officers in Wabash knew about his war obsession. And as it turns out, they were right. The weekend of September 19th, 1993, there was a revolutionary war reenactment at Forest Glen Park. And that park was just five miles from Georgetown, Illinois. Wow. So Detective Miller went to Wabash and he met with Hall about the disappearance and the murder of Jessica Roach. And just like before, when he was questioned about it, he immediately confessed. And there's a scene in the show, and it actually happened. Gary Miller showed a picture of Roach to Hall. And as soon as Hall saw it, he covered up his face and he said that he thought he would never see that girl again. There you go. I mean, slam dunk case. Yeah. Such a common tactic by detectives too. like, let's show them pictures and see their reaction. And they can tell so much from that. And it seemed like he reacted like a killer would. Well, a lot of times you're just looking for body language. Like, how does this guy present when he sees a picture? But he even says verbally, I thought I would never see her again. So you put yourself with the victim and that's perfect. Now he did confess to sexually assaulting her and then setting her up against the tree before using a belt to wrap around the tree and her in order to strangle her. And this time the confession was not ignored. This investigation by Gary Miller was spot on. He was a great detective. Hall was always really soft-spoken. Uh, we we kind of mimicked his accent earlier. Or I don't know if accent's the right word. The, his cadence of speaking, he rambled a lot. So his confessions were a lot like that. They were all over the place. He was speaking sometimes. He would just throw in some historical facts about why he was in town. It was hard to follow the details uh, of what Larry was saying. And even when he was confessing and telling the truth, it was hard to separate fact from fiction as he was retelling these stories as he could view it in his own mind's eye. Like a lot of killers, he tried to justify what he did. He convinced himself that these girls wanted to have sex with him. She looked at me, so she must have wanted to have sex with me. Right, of course. But then he would say, they got mad. And then they started being mean to me when I went too far or when I touched them in a certain place. So that's when he punished them for being mean. And that's how he justified all of this to himself and to people he talked to. Like before with uh, Trisha Reitler, he would recant pretty quickly. And unfortunately, he had some ground to claim that his confession maybe was coerced. We talked about that. There were no notes taken at all during his interrogation. There was no recording of his confession to anything that he did with Jessica Roach. I've seen that in a lot of cases we've covered lately is police get these confessions. And what they end up doing is just typing out a statement for the person to sign. But how easy is it to say, yeah, I know I signed it, but I didn't say this or with the technology we have, we should record everything, right? Yeah. And with his low IQ, I mean, did he actually take time to read everything? Was he physically able to read everything and understand what he was reading? So, yeah, I wish I could have saw recordings in that situation. Absolutely. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. 
So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It, it still gets to me, too, where they'll say, like, well, we can't use, you know, recordings as evidence and all this other stuff. And it's like, you know, especially you would think if it's a confession... And, and maybe they think that somebody's going to be freaked out if there's a camera, but you put a camera, you know, a hidden camera on the wall or whatever it is. If someone's going to confess, you want to get that as, as locked in as you can. Yeah, absolutely. And it leaves so much room for error when you don't do that. And they didn't do that here. The FBI agent typed up the statement. He signed it. And apparently in this rambling, he confessed to killing a lot of girls. He said, I saw so many girls, but I don't remember which ones I hurt. Right. Is a big quote from that. So with the signed confession, he was booked for kidnapping, not murder, not rape, kidnapping Jessica Roach. And he was booked on November 16th of 1994. He had confessed to her murder. That was part of the confession, but the evidence only supported the kidnapping and they wanted to make sure they put him away. So he was indicted in September. There were some newspaper clippings found at his house about Jessica Roach, in addition to the knife and rope and everything found in his van. So that was the evidence they went with. They had the confession, they had the newspaper clippings and what they could find in his van. The trial took place in June of 95, where his attorneys tried to get his confession thrown out in recanting. He said, I was just telling you about my dreams. These are stories. This is what I dreamed about. I told you a story and you wrote it down. That didn't really happen, but they allowed it to stay in the trial and the confession was presented to the jury. The defense argued unsuccessfully that his IQ was too low. He had personality disorders and he was susceptible to a false confession. And I think in 2023, that's a strong case for a false confession. And they may have gotten it to go through then, but they didn't hear. Wow. They said there was no false confession. He was convicted after an eight day trial and given a life sentence for the kidnapping. I'm going to emphasize that it'll come back up later. Just kidnapping of Jessica Roach. Hmm. He still did receive a life sentence without the possibility of parole, which Kudos. I think if you kidnap a kid, you should go away for life. A lot of times people don't, but that's a good sentence. But people were still worried that the conviction wouldn't stick. And that's kind of where we get to the the plot of, of Blackbird. So that sentence is like really, really harsh for a kidnap. I know kidnapping is bad. I'm not saying that. But to receive life is almost unheard of for a kid. It's uncommon. Charge. Yeah, I agree with so, you. So like you said, though, now we get to the plot of the show Blackbird and explain exactly what the plot of the show is. Like Jamie said, Hall had a legitimate chance of getting his conviction overturned. He had a low IQ. He was very vague on the details of his confection, and he immediately recanted. So those are qualities that are common with overturned convictions based on primarily confessions. So there's a chance that the appellate court could rule that the confession should not have been allowed and that he would get a new trial. So Prosecutors were also trying to connect Hall to several other murders that matched up with his MO. If they could get evidence that he committed multiple murders, then they would ensure that he would be locked up forever and his chance of appeal would go away. And they could give justice to the families of several missing and murdered young girls. And yeah, like you said, that's where the premise of this show comes in. So in 1996, the FBI got involved with this case. There were suspected murders in several states, so it crossed state lines. The FBI was involved, and they came up with this creative idea to get more evidence against Larry Hall and potentially more confessions and more convictions. As you mentioned, he was played by Paul Walter Hauser, who won a Golden Globe for this. Yeah. Incredible performance. 
So they approached an inmate at another prison, Jimmy Keene, who's played by Taron Edgerton, and asked him to go undercover to befriend Larry Hall and get close enough to find out secrets about the other murders he have committed. There are jailhouse snitches in most cases. People come out of the woodwork and say, hey, he told me he did this so that they'll get a lesser sentence. But we don't often see authorities going in and saying, hey, we want you to do this. Right. Keene was the son of a police officer, played by Ray Liotta, and he grew up in Kankakee, Illinois. He was a star athlete. He had running back, uh, or he had offers to be a running back in, in several Division One college football programs. He was a good-looking kid with a lot of charisma. He's the serial killer that does get away with it because he can talk us all of it. But he wasn't a killer. He he had a bright future. He had a lot in front of him. But he did choose to take his talents outside the law to make a living. He got into selling pot as a teenager to make some extra money. He chose to go to a small college, a Triton Community College in Chicago to play football. But when he got into the city, he got access to more and more drugs. And that started when he started getting more and more into the dealing game of drugs. He started selling cocaine and he did really well for himself. He dropped out of college his sophomore year. And according to Keene, he was a millionaire by the time that he would have graduated from college from selling cocaine in Chicago. So... He's really got his hand on this on this drug peddling game. He's a good looking guy with a lot going for him until it's not going for him anymore. Right. This is the yeah. 1980s and 90s. The war on crime, the war on drugs is really ramping up in our country. The DEA caught wind of Keene's operation. He was caught and charged with drug trafficking and he was convinced to plead guilty, but still got 10 years without the possibility of parole and I have to say that that's also a pretty hefty drug sentence for somebody's first time, especially back in the in the 90s. Why do you think he got such a big sentence? Yeah, John, you can speculate and say, I, I wonder if they had this plan in place when he went to trial. If they were like, we're going to, we think we can use this guy for something down the road. We can flip him. If he has a longer sentence, then maybe we can convince him to work with us. He was a multimillionaire dealing drugs in the 90s. So he was doing pretty well. He was moving a lot of product. Yeah, exactly. I don't know that they had the plan in place during his sentencing, but yeah, he had, I mean, basically a drug empire and multiple firearms. So they kind of threw him under the jail with the sentence, in my opinion. But one year into his sentence, that's when Keene was approached by the assistant U.S. attorney Lawrence Beaumont with an offer. And that offer was if you would take a transfer to the maximum security prison where Larry Hall is located in Springfield, Missouri, and you work with Larry Hall to get him to share details of his crimes, then we'll let you out of prison early and your sentence will be commuted. So pretty good deal, except for you have to befriend Larry Hall in a maximum security prison. <laughs> yeah, right. All this happened really quickly in the show, but uh, there was a lot of back and forth here, and that's a big decision to make. Like he's going to this maximum security prison with a lot more violent criminals than he was with in the beginning and really risking his life to get out early. This is a big decision. He said that it took him five months to actually befriend Larry Hall and that the hardest thing for him was that he had to spend time with Larry Hall knowing the evil things this man had done and not be able to tear him apart because that would blow his cover. And Larry Hall is in prison for raping little girls and kidnapping little girls and potentially murdering them. Those kinds of people do not do well in prison. Those are the people that your older guys, your gang guys, they're going to they're gonna go after Larry Hall for what he had done. And when you're keen in this situation and you're becoming friends with this guy, 
that puts a target on your back too. So this was not an easy task for Keen. This puts a target on his back and makes his time in prison pretty difficult. In those five months of earning Hall's trust, it was it wasn't easy. Hall's not a good an easy friend to be friends with anyway. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It is very much like a movie that, that they... It reminds me of like when you were play baseball as a kid and you go have a conversation with the pitcher and you come back with the ball in your glove and the guy comes off and you tag him. It's like, is that even legal? Like, are you allowed? Right. And that's kind of what I felt with this, but obviously it was. And just think about this guy going to maximum security. If you get it, you get off, but who knows what could happen to you in maximum security. I wondered when I was watching it, if I'm the U.S. attorney in, in this situation, like, why am I going to trust another convicted felon with this information, knowing that if he gives me information, he's getting out of jail early, but I guess you have to fact check it and make sure it's all legit. Yeah. It's a weird situation when you're asking one convict to rat out another convict. But maybe it has something to do with the reason why, like we said, why did he get such a big sentence? Obviously he's very affluent, very classy. Like on the show, he's, he's an upper class, very smart, intelligent guy. So maybe that's why they thought they could trust him if they gave him the option of getting out of jail free type of thing. Usually when they cast people in shows or movies, I always think like, yeah, they went a little over the top of the casting. They got a really good looking guy, but this guy, like he was legitimately that dude. Yeah. I, I looked it up the moment I saw the same thing. Is this just the, doing this for, you know, Hollywood purposes, but the guy is actually a very good looking guy. So he, he really is. And some of the other characters got the glow up treatment, but, but he didn't, he didn't need it. Yeah. Also, maybe it's because we do this so often and, and talk about crimes all the time. But I wonder about the liabilities. Like, what if he goes over there and gets killed? Can the family sue the U.S. attorney's office? Or I don't know. Like, right? Was there an actual contract or was there no paperwork? Was this under the table? Like so many things happening here that we can't find because it's not public record that I like you. I was like, can they really do this? But they absolutely did. Yeah. So once he felt like he had Hall's confidence, he told him that I'll still be your friend. Just you can open up to me about things that you've done. He said, I'll understand why you hurt people. They they were mean to you. And Hall initially talked to Keene about the Jessica Roach murder, but Keene knew that he had to get more information. This was a confession that the police already had. So he continued to be Hall's friend and to try to get information about other crimes he had committed, specifically Trisha Reitler, because that's another one that they thought that he had committed and that with a little more information that they may be able to pin on him. Yeah. And eventually Hall went into every detail of the crime. He talked about how he kidnapped Trisha, how he sexually assaulted her, how he killed her, and how he buried her in what Hall called the best grave I ever dug. Right. Which is an eerie sentence, but also he used to be a grave digger. So it's got a a lot more meaning there. Double connotation there. Yeah, exactly. But there was no precise location of the grave. And we really don't get that for any of his victims. And I wonder how much of that is just him really not being smart enough to get back there when he was doing these confessions or to identify where those things happened. So after this, it didn't play out exactly like we saw on the show, but Keen did see a map that Hall had drawn. There were several red dots scattered around Illinois, Wisconsin, 
Indiana, and there were also some carved falcons there. In the show, it's laid out on a table, and there's this mood music, and it's presented. But what actually happened was a little more, uh, probably faster, and he saw him drawing in the map, and he said, yeah, these these are just spots that are special to me. What are the birds for? The quote was, they're there to watch over the dead. Wow. Most of the series was so accurate, and this is one of the things that they got pretty right, except for the setting. I don't think it was in a big room on a table or anything like that, but there was a map that was never recovered. There were bird carvings, so that's kind of how it got the name Blackbird. He said, my brother will paint these when when I send them to him. Right. But they represented the locations of the buried bodies, and even on the map, later Keen would say that the red dots represented hundreds of miles, so it's not like there was a precise location on these maps. It was like Somewhere around here, I buried a body. Somewhere around there, I killed somebody. So he confessed to Keen, I've killed a lot of people. These birds are here to watch over them. And Keen at this point thinks, I've got what I need. In the show, he loses it and causes a big scene. Yeah. That actually happened in real life. But he didn't fight Hall. He didn't injure him in any way. But he did go off on him verbally, and it made a huge scene. And when he did this, a couple of things happened. First of all, he blew his cover. So the relationship that he had worked hard to establish with Larry Hall was done. There was no way to repair that. And there was no way to get any more information from Hall. And he really hadn't gathered evidence about the other murders, except for an alleged jailhouse confession. And the other thing that happened in King's tirade was that he got thrown into the hole. He got thrown into solitary confinement. And that actually happened you know, in the series, but also in real life. Yeah, they, 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 he wasn't able to contact his FBI. And because keep in mind, he's in this prison and nobody knows why he's even in there or, or knows the, the real reason why he's in there, except for his FBI informant. I think maybe one person in the jail and he couldn't get a hold of them. No one believes him. What's he going to say, right? He has the one contact. He has to wait for his time on the phone. There's no special treatment, no special yeah. circumstances. And he calls and leaves a message and the FBI agent was on vacation. Somebody was supposed to say, if yeah. Jimmy Keene calls, let me know. And nobody did. So he got sent to the hole. Because once again, nobody can know. Right. I don't know if, how much it's true or not, but in, the, in Blackbird, there's a real crooked prison guard in there that's trying to get Jimmy out to get Jimmy. And, you know, it's like he's very, very dangerous. He even yells at his dad for his dad showing up to, to visit him because his dad was an ex-cop, you know, and got some secret treatment to get in there quicker. So there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle in place that this guy couldn't be known. So like you said, when, when, when he gets, you know, they think he's lying, he's in the hole for two weeks or whatever it is. And one more thing too, it really was frustrating that he lost his cool on that map because like you said, he never actually grabbed the map. And then I don't know if you guys can tell us if this is true in the hole from memory and like basically cutting his finger because they won't even give him a pencil. He draws the map on the wall. Did that actually happen? That I could, did not actually happen. We couldn't okay. find that actually happened. <laughs> okay. We think he just used his memory when he was able to eventually talk to the FBI. When he got out of the hole, um, he was able to draw that for him. But no, no biting of the fingers and writing it in blood on the wall. But that was so dramatic, right? That was a great scene. Great scene, yeah. So he actually did, though, remember enough of the map from memory to be able to re- recreate a certain portion of it? Yeah, he did. But like I said, it was the, the map was not exactly to scale. So the, the dots, basically, they were able to say, well, yes, we know there was a reenactment in this city at this time. 
So that dot probably represents this missing girl, but it wasn't enough to locate the bodies. It wasn't precise enough to actually produce any evidence other than to relate the crimes he was suspected of to an actual piece of evidence that says, yes, he had a relation to that location. Yeah, he was able to share with the FBI about the murders of Jessica Roach and Trisha Rattler, but he didn't have any details of Hall's other murders. But this was enough to prevent the appeal from being granted. And Keene was released shortly after this incident. He only served around 17 months of a 10-year sentence because of his work with Larry Hall. So he did actually get released. So, but, so even though he didn't get the map, what details was he able to give them that, that got him off the hook, so to speak? So Hall provided him with some details about Jessica Roach's murder, such as the way the belt was around her neck, around the tree. It was tightened like a tourniquet where her body was buried. Well, her body wasn't buried. That was a piece of it as well that oh wow, the soil wasn't good for burying, I think is what Larry Hall said in the series. But where she was found, the condition she was found in, what she was wearing, things that the police had never shared with anybody. So there were uh, some pieces of information that only the killer would have that Keen was able to provide that he got from Hall that was able to get his appeal, keep it from being overturned. Because he had information that only the police knew. There's no way Larry Hall or Keen could know this other than Larry Hall confessed to it. Hmm. So it wasn't information to try him for any other crimes. It basically was just enough to keep him in prison for what he was already convicted of which I guess was the ultimate goal for sending him in. So King got out and he wrote a book that the Blackbird was based on. It was called In With the Devil, A Fallen Hero, A Serial Killer, and A Dangerous Bargain for Redemption. That's a heck of a title for a book. <laughs> Isn't it? So he, he claimed that everything was worth it. He got released early and his dad, who was very ill at the time that he went into prison, uh, he was able to get out and spend probably five or six years with his dad before his dad passed away. So... He said that everything that he risked, all the mental anguish, the torture, the the prison beatings and everything that happened to him was worth it because he got to spend more time with his dad. Right. Larry Hall went on to confess to nearly 40 murders and some of those at the encouragement of his brother saying you need to provide these families with peace and that kind of thing. But he recanted all of them and they were all the same. They were all just enough to say, I think he was probably there but just mucked up enough with his crazy ideas and off the wall stories that it was hard to prove. And he recanted all of them. The map was never found in the series. He mails it to his brother. I don't think that's what happened. I think it was probably destroyed after Keen saw it. That's the most uh, likely scenario there. Now that we know his MO, his victimology, his travel routes for these war reenactments, there are over 50 cases that have not been solved that local authorities across the Midwest think that Larry Hall may have been involved in. And there are still cold cases that are brought up today that when they're reopened, people say, well, Larry Hall was around here then. So his name keeps coming up. These crimes go back as far as 1981 when he was just 19 years old. Yeah. And it's believed that his last kill was uh, as early as three weeks before he was arrested. His victims were between 10 and 28 years old, all women and several victims whose bodies have never been found. We, we do know that Jessica Roach's body was found and that's how they were able to tie him to it. But so many missing women out there and that's a wide range of age in victimology. Usually we see killer stick to we're looking at this race, this gender and this age range. Uh, so in a lot of ways, I think Hall was just looking for victims of opportunity. 
but this is the big piece here. Larry Hall, who we think killed 50 plus people, who we know killed at least two, has never been convicted of murder. Wow. He was convicted of kidnapping, never of murder. And that's the only serial killer that, like, of course, we know, like, the Zodiac. We don't know who that is. So they've obviously never been convicted. Jack the Ripper, we don't know who that is. But all the serial killers that we cover, we know they're killers because they've been convicted of murder. But Larry Hall never has, which is, to me, the most unbelievable part of all of this crazy story. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It would seem so ridiculous that they weren't able to get any evidence on him and once again, he's recanting and confessing the 40 murders and they just go, oh, he was just having a rough day. That's I mean, that's that blows my mind that, you know, that that's even something that's possible. Yeah. Some people probably look at his sentence of life in prison, but that's for kidnapping and see that as justice. But for me, I don't think it's justice unless you're spending time specifically for the crime that you did. So why not open a trial back up and prosecute him for murder of at least these two women that we know he murdered. Um, I know you can't do all 50 because you don't have enough evidence, but you have enough for two. And I feel like those victims deserve justice. It's unfortunate to me that he was never convicted of murder. Agreed. Well, once again, too, it's the same story that we have for all these poor families of never having the closure of finding out where their missing daughters, wives, whoever are, you know? Yeah. And in these confessions, he would, promised to lead people to bodies and he would make all these promises. And as soon as he was called on it of, all right, well, let's, let's go, let's do this. Let's put pen to paper. Let's, let's move on this to give this family some peace. He would say, no, that was just one of my stories or just a dream I had, or just something I was thinking about and then would completely shut down. And he was so hard to talk to anyway, that to get enough information to actually locate evidence, it just never happened. So there was no physical evidence to tie him to any of this. And as a prosecutor, that's a decision you have to make. But in my mind, if you kill this many people, this is something you don't stop until you get one to stick, I think. It's the, the thread that runs through every time we talk about this. The killers get off much easier than the people they killed. You know, there's never any tie this guy up in the town square and throw rocks at him until he dies. This guy, you know, I was just, I'm, I'm up in, in Northern California. I was just in Alcatraz a few days ago and they were talking about it. Like for the ones that were completely off the rockers, Alcatraz is actually a pretty great place because you got three meals a day and you got shelter and you got medical care and you had people to talk to. And it's like, okay, well, it's not, you know, it's prison, but whatever. And none of those other people that they killed ever had that option. Yeah. It's three hots and a cot, right? Like you've got everything yeah. you need to live. You get access to education. You get access to. Yeah to entertainment like it's not an easy life but it's easier than these people these families that are living without their loved ones it made me think like early in our podcast jamie and i covered a case where a 16 year old was convicted of murder the supreme court eventually ruled that you can't sentence a juvenile to life in prison without the possibility of parole so you see these juveniles be released from prison well what if one day 
the Supreme Court rules, you can't get life in prison for kidnapping, like 25 years max. Yeah. This guy's going to walk free if that ever happens. I know that's a huge what if, but I think he deserves to be convicted of all the other crimes, too. He's 60 years old. He's still alive. If he got out today, I think he could still do damage. Like, he's still a risk to society. He's still young. I mean, let's be honest, you know. Like you said, if he's 59 or almost 60, I mean, that's only eight years older than me, and I don't feel old at all. So it's like his whole life is basically ahead of him, like you said, with with all of these things that he could have done. So it is it is a, another horrible situation. Now, let me ask you this as, as, as we start to wind down. Do you find, like, when I mean, all of the, the guys we've talked about recently, the reason why we, we, we bring them up is because they're on people's minds. Obviously, we had the, the Dahmer show with Evan Peters, and then there was the the documentary about Bundy and the documentary about Gacy. And now we have this, quite frankly, amazing performance from Paul Walter Hauser. Does that make people aware of these guys in a good way, in a bad way? Does it really matter? Does it make them more famous? I mean, does it help them? Does it hinder them? How do you feel about that whole thing? That's a really good question. And I had that as a, as a note to talk about. When Dahmer came out, there was so much backlash from that, from families of the victims to society saying, why are we glorifying this killer? And I really haven't seen that from Blackbird. Now, I will say that the Dahmer show showed a lot more of the crimes and it, it was a little more gory. Yeah. This was probably more about Jimmy Keene than it was about Larry Hall. Yes. And it did reflect, I think, appropriately on the victims and their families. But I think it's still the same deal, right? Like we're talking about monsters who were sexually motivated to rape and kill people. Obviously, we continue to run a true crime podcast. So we feel like these stories are worth being told. I think there's an element of of learning from history, of of sharing these stories to help people grow and not make the same mistakes. And there is the entertainment piece of it, but I think mostly people are drawn to the mystery of, did this person get the justice they needed? I don't see that any different as looking at other pieces of history in my mind. Yeah. I mean, once again, guys, it makes me you know wonder, like we said at the beginning of this show, if had there been no Paul Walter Hauser playing this, I mean, are there, are there, how many other other of these guys is there that we don't know about because once again, his crimes went from 81 to where 94, 94. Yeah. So 13 years of killing people. That's a really long, like even the serial killers that have a high body count, but 13 years is a long run to not be caught. Yeah, exactly. Any final thoughts on, uh, on Larry Hall? Yeah. Just some other thoughts from the show, as far as accuracy, some things that were different. Um, this was much more accurate, I think than, than the Dahmer show overall, but, it also didn't have as much room for error. Yeah. I mean, just some interesting notes from the production of the show. The story of Keen's background was pretty much spot on, and he actually had a role in producing the film. And I thought that was oh, wow. interesting. Yeah. He even made a cameo as a prison guard. Yeah. So, so he was he was there day to day. Oh, wow. Uh, Jamie, do you want to talk about Butkus? Yeah. So the, the female FBI agent, her character name was Lauren McCauley, was loosely based on FBI agent Janet Butkus, who was the niece of Chicago Bears linebacker. Oh, wow. <laughs> the one thing that was accurate about her portrayal is that when she would visit Keenan prison, she went as his quote unquote girlfriend. And there's a scene where on the plane, she's like, grab my ass, kiss me, whatever you want to do. They need to think I'm your girlfriend when I come to see you. And that was that's right. Yeah. That was unfortunate. She looked a lot like Dick Butkus. But yeah, it was good. <laughs> Another interesting fact is that the show had been in development for well over a decade before it was finally made. And at one point they had Brad Pitt lined up to play Jimmy Keene and Johnny Depp. They had in mind for Larry Hall, Oh wow! but because of the length of production, both men aged out of that role. 
before the project came to reality. But how crazy would that have been to see Johnny Depp playing Larry Hall? I know he's a huge actor, but I think yeah, Stingray yeah, your is guy, who I call him. Yeah, your guy Paul, Paul uh, did. was perfect. Paul was the perfect man for that. And I'll tell you why he's the perfect guy. Because Paul Walter Hauser is not your typical movie star. It's the same thing when he played Richard Jewell. It worked so well because he's not, you know, you get Johnny Depp to play this character and he's still Johnny Depp. I don't care how ugly you make him. He's still got Johnny Depp's eyes and Johnny Depp's, you know, physique, you know, I mean, so it's one of those things where in theory it's cool, but I believed every single word that Paul Hauser did with that just because he kind of really looks like the guy and he's, he's creepy, man. He, you know, in, in person, he's a great guy, but if yeah. you see Johnny Depp, he's, he wanted to put his picture on the wall. You see Paul Hauser, you're like, oh man, he's kind of a creepy looking guy, you know? I was going to say, he's just like me, but I don't think he's creepy looking. <laughs> I don't know. He's just a normal dude. Yeah, exactly. He's an everyman. Yeah. And, and that's why it works. Yeah. The only piece of the show that was really out of nowhere was that crooked guard that you mentioned earlier. There was no base in reality of a, of a guard that was trying to blackmail Keen into getting him money or holding him right some kind of ransom or whatever that didn't happen that was added for dramatic effect but he was really good friends with a mob boss in there Vincent the chin gigante <laughs> and and that was an issue because uh he wanted to take Keen under his wing he saw him as having potential into prison life but didn't want him to be friends with Larry Hall so he was having to balance all these other relationships in prison in addition to trying to act like Larry Hall's his best friend and convince Larry that he was his best friend so Talk about an acting job. The real Jimmy Keenan prison put on the performance of a lifetime. Sure. And, and got the evidence that he needed to get off. So, yeah. Well, guys, always a pleasure to talk to you, even if these subjects are very uh, dark and deep. But um, if you guys watch, uh, listen to this, haven't seen Blackbird, definitely go watch it out, not just for the performances, but for the real life story that's being told. As sad as it is, there's never a, a, a lack of cases like this to discuss. So when you guys get another one, let me know and we'll, uh, we'll reconvene then. Sure will, man. We appreciate you having us on as always. Yep, always a pleasure, Chris. Thanks. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much.